Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together to debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. Hey, anybody miss Rockefeller Republicanism? You're going to find out more about it with David Spencer next on Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Gold Cup. Hey everybody, welcome back to Vincent Jason Save the Nation. A lot going on in the world. In fact, as we record this, the president's overseas trying to manage a big international conflict. But here at home, we've got another good show for you. Jason Nichols, what's on deck? Absolutely. We have David Spencer, who is a old school Rockefeller Republican. I'm sure there are a lot of Republicans out there, probably some of you millennials and Gen Xers, who are like, what is a Rockefeller Republican? What does it mean? What, what's the difference between the Republican Party then and the Republican Party now? Uh, so David Spencer is going to kind of get into that with us and talk about where he stands on a lot of uh, today's issues. David, thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I got to admit, guys, I, I'm a little down because this whole uh, uh, thing with Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny, has really thrown me for a loop because, uh, you know, it seems like she was peddling some of these like Michael Flynn, you know, Mr. Pillow, the nuttiest of the nut job conspiracy theories. And it just makes me wonder how deep the rot has gone. And so I'm, I'm a very glasses half full guy, but I must admit, uh, it's, it's hard to be optimistic these days. So let's get into well, that, actually. Um, you know, with Ginny Thomas, uh, we actually, last week, we had Ted Cruz on the, on the podcast, and he was, I, I asked him, just like I asked uh, Alan Dershowitz, should Clarence Thomas recuse himself from any cases having to do with the former president? And his answer, of course, was no. And, uh, Dershowitz said yes. So uh, I think I know where you fall, but I want to ask that question to you. Should he recuse himself? Well, I think theoretically, yes. I guess what, what's more troubling for me is I just, uh, John Roberts has always tried to make the court above politics. And Thomas was the only judge out of nine who voted against turning over the documents to the January 6th committee. So you have to wonder how much was his wife a factor in that? And, and, you know, has it, unfortunately, has the rot gotten to the point where even our highest court is not immune from it? And that's a pretty, a pretty sobering thought. But the, the documents in question, the, were the January 6th committee was trying to secure documents from the National Archives, and they didn't involve any of these texts that are in question. These texts were between Ginny Thomas and Mark Meadows, and they were obtained by the January 6th committee already because Mark Meadows gave those texts to the committee. Uh, so the so in other words, the case that Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas uh, ruled again, as you as you note in the lone dissent, it didn't have anything to do with these text messages. We know. So, well, that's true, but you just wonder how much did he know? It just it just blurs the line, I guess. But I right. guess I my, this is where I just want to jump in and and well, one note first of all, I've worked with Jenny Thomas in the past. She did a video series here for us at the Daily Caller for for years, so I know her as a result. And also, I think a lot of Republicans, you may know her in this way too, uh, David, it, have known her for many years as a conservative activist. This, is, yeah. this has been her, her lifelong kind of ambition. She's been in 
and around Washington, D.C. and serving in that role and certainly has all sorts of conservative priorities. It's not entirely unusual for her to be connected to the highest echelons of the Republican Party to being to include Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff. And I totally understand the concerns about appearances that come along with this. But for her to be urging him, well, keep up the fight. Remember, this was like right after the election in the lead up to Inauguration Day. Keep up the fight. You know, she never once, as far as I can tell, ever advocated for anything illegal in any of this. Uh, she was she was under the impression that there was enough evidence to for Trump to prevail in court with these election challenges and wanted to see Mark Meadows and others keep that fight going. Uh, I don't I don't see how this rises to the level of smashing the panic button. Uh, well, I, no, I'm not saying it, I'm not saying it does that. But when you consider some of the text messages where Mark Meadows was saying, you know, he was going to talk to the king of kings and. You know, she was saying, do whatever you have to do. I guess it gets down to the thing that worries me the most, and that is the peaceful transfer of power is the bedrock of our democracy. As yeah. Mitch McConnell said, if the loser of a race doesn't respect the outcome, our democracy goes into a death spiral. And every single court, you know, everything has, has ruled against it. Trump's old, own team said it's the most secure election ever. And so to have someone like Ginny Thomas, who I thought, well, yes, was a big and conservative, I thought she was the more, more traditional conservative, you know, someone almost in the Mitch McConnell vein, not someone that was buying into this conspiratorial stuff. And I'm sure, um, Jason, a lot of us, we can relate to, we have friends who've kind of gone off the deep end with the stop the steal thing. And it's almost like you see more and more people getting picked off by the cult almost. And it just, it's scary because it, and then the, the attorney general from Alabama yesterday wouldn't even it wouldn't even say that uh, uh, Biden was fairly elected. He would just say he was the president. You know, it just the list goes on and on. And it just worries me that that we're going to have a really tough time in these next couple of elections because people just don't seem to respect the outcomes anymore. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, to, to Vince's point, I, I hear what he's saying. I think absolutely that Jenny Thomas has the right to be active in the Republican Party. Uh, to advocate for what she believes in and to even donate her resources and time to those causes. Um, but as far as something illegal, I think overturning a free and fair election is illegal. Uh, and calling for somehow dismantling our the results of our democratic process is absolutely illegal. Um, now, again, you can you can ask for recounts, uh, you can, you know, of, of course, of course, uh, you can go through the courts. That is a legal process. But if the objective is do whatever it takes to win, that is not what we do in America and, and in our elections. Um, I think that's actually a really, really scary thought is right. to my, my point. take power away from the people and yeah. put it in the hands of a couple of powerful people like Mark Meadows and others. That's really I couldn't really agree dangerous. more. I couldn't agree more on the on that basic point that that you know if you take the power away from the people, then you're subverting democracy. I totally agree with that. And just to to put the final emphasis on this from my position, I looked at those Jenny Thomas messages. The media is in a in a hype pattern right now about those details. But again, it's never once did she advocate for something illegal. She never advocated for stealing anything she did yeah, advocate she said, do whatever it takes to to stay in so how do you no, interpret so, that how do you but, interpret but so, I, I guess the, i guess what's also frustrating for me is that this this whole thing is happening just because our 
narcissistic little man boy of a 45th president couldn't accept the fact that he lost. And that's really what this, what well, this me... comes down to. And so now you have this litmus test where, you know, if you don't, Brian Kemp is the classic example of the governor of Georgia, right? Who's, I mean, think about the irony. He's being challenged by David Perdue. David Perdue lost his Senate race because of Donald Trump. He got 49.7% in the actual election. And that's only because tens of thousands of fewer, fewer people um, voted by mail because Trump crapped on mail-in voting. And then he lost in the, in the runoff and they lost both seats once again because- Yeah, you Trump had people like- so anyway, but, but my, my point is, and so now David Perdue is going against Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp is, you know, he signed the voter laws. He's done all the stuff. His one sin is he had the temerity to certify the election. Right. And, so, and, and that, so, and that's so in Georgia, all it takes. in Georgia, I mean, this this goes to a point I think you'd agree with, which is that that people were and I, Jason and I have talked about this before. You had people who would have been inclined to vote for those Republican candidates who sat home because they believed Absolutely. the election was rigged. And you had in the encouragement of people like Lynn Wood out there saying, don't even bother voting uh, in the runoff election because it's not going to matter. So people listened and that made up enough of a difference. And then two Democrats ended up in the Senate and that gave Democrats the ability to get some of their agenda uh, uh, through in both houses now. Uh, so that that all of that is absolutely true. But I, I just want to go back to a prior point, and it's about the fairness of our elections. And I think broadly, one of the themes of this show is the um, the trust in institutions and how much it's collapsed and kind of trying to figure out why that is. That 2020 election, if you set aside all these claims of voter fraud and and the extent to which, like, you know, the stuff that, that Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood were trying to advance, and look just at the basic things like the way the media covered these stories, the active suppression of the Hunter Biden story in the waning weeks of the election, the collusion between both media and the big tech companies on that story. That is no, that is not a fair way for an election to be conducted in a thriving democracy. That is a subversion of democratic norms in order to achieve a preferred electoral outcome. So for, I, I think there is a case to be made. I wouldn't, basically all I'm saying is I wouldn't let your well-founded examination of like these idea about voting machines being nonsense, using that as a way to elide over the broader problem, which is, yes, there is a trust deficit in our electoral system. And yes, there are real problems worth addressing. Is that fair? No, yeah, I, I, I think so. And again, you know, we can get in the weeds and say, yes, the media was bad, big techs suppressed information. Sometimes they do it so stupidly that it hurts them. But the bottom line is if you take a step back, there was no sign of any significant voter fraud that would have changed the outcome of the election. That's the bottom line. Right. 60 courts have upheld this. So you can, you can argue the details, but that's the bottom line. But yet people just, just can't let it go. And again, Mo Brooks, another classic example from Alabama, now granted he's a terrible candidate and his poll numbers have been plunging. But again, he said, let's look forward. Let's not look backwards. And again, Trump, threw him under the bus. Well, you know, I, I'll never complain about Mo Brooks getting thrown under the bus, but I, I'll say- Nor will I, he's dreadful. <laughs> but uh, I, I definitely agree that there is a, a trust deficit between the media and the public. Um, it And it's dangerous because it sends people to alternative media like like Vincent Jason Save the Nation. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. very dangerous. <laughs> well, here's a, here, here's a stat for you guys. I love my, my stats. 
in during the time of Watergate, over 70% of American people trusted the media as a good source. Now it's 31%. Yeah. And that is a tragic number. And believe me, the media, which definitely has a liberal bias, I don't think it's quite as bad as some people say, they have been their own worst enemy. Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree with you slightly there, David, only because I don't think the media has a liberal bias when you really look at it. Um, there are more conservative outlets uh, there, you know, and and when you look at the ratings and what people watch in terms of mainstream media and what people read in terms of mainstream media, a lot of that is conservative. And then when we talk about liberal, what what actually are you referring to as liberal? Uh, if you're talking about centrist media. Um, like I always say, for example, people bring up CNN. CNN is the third network. You know, they don't get even a third of the viewers of Fox News. Um, they're not really a, a left-wing network. They're they're an anti-Trump network. It's there's a difference. And and I think when you look at uh, the power of the left in the media, um, I don't really think it's it's quite. I would say that the right wing has a much stronger. Uh, and and this and you being someone who came out of like that Rockefeller Republican, you know, 1970s, 1980s conservatism, then you kind of get one of the strengths of uh, conservative media is that grassroots media ecosystem, the, the AM radio, the, you know, the now it's, you know, on the Internet, the info wars and all of that, they have been so much stronger than the left. The left just has mainstream media. The left just has, you know, NBC and MSNBC and, and things like that. And I think when we say, when we talk about the media, we have to include the, the entire ecosystem. And I would say the right is much stronger. And well, this is one I, of the reasons why the current president is struggling with poll numbers. He can't, no, you know, and, and yeah. it's all his own fault as well. But, well, no, I, 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 I definitely think that's true. And certainly when I talk in media, I'm talking more mainstream. But CNN, let me push back on that a little bit. Do you remember during the first Iraq war, right, with Peter Arnett, the only reporter out of Baghdad, CNN was a strict news station. And you had Fox on the right, you had MSNB, MSNBC on the left. And, and now CNN has become, you can call it anti-Trump, you can call it left wing, but they're, they're no longer objective. And I think the major networks... Uh, some of their new cast are that way. And you look at some of the, the comedians on the major networks. So you're right. The grassroots, smaller AM radio has been dominated by the right. But a lot of newspapers like the New York Times, I grew up in New York, New York City. I, I still love the New York Times, but it's definitely become more biased in terms of the way that they cover stories in the last 10 years. I don't think anyone can deny that. And I'm saying that as someone who really loves newspapers and loves, you know, loves reading. So I think that that that's where a lot of the, the uh, distrust has been sowed. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I guess I, I look at it, you know, in, in the aggregate and I look at like, you know, the things that the media pushed, even some of these so-called liberal outlets uh, throughout history. So when we, when we go for the last 40 years, the things that, that the New York Times has pushed like, the war on drugs, the war in Iraq, those are all right-wing, you know, kind of concepts that they've pushed, um, even though people seem to think that there's some sort of left-wing network. Well, um, me, can, can, I, can I just offer that maybe yeah. we're not thinking about this the right way? Maybe it's not a right versus left situation. Maybe it's sort of an elite versus the rest of us situation, mm -hmm. because 
what you have is news outlets that seem to the legacy news media seems to more and more and and through the years certainly represent the interests of the status quo ruling class versus sort of what the rest of us need for our in order to like function as a democracy right so like in order to be a well-informed voter to make good decisions when you go into that ballot box you need a media that you can rely on but the problem is the media has blinders to all of the issues that actually matter on on balance to the average person i mean right now is a good expression of that is ukraine important in the minds of a lot of americans yeah absolutely it is but is it the single most dominant thing in the lives of the average American? No, it's not. But the media coverage right now is in no way commensurate with that reality. And that reality looks like, you know, the inflation and the gas prices, the opioid epidemic, the, the border being out of control, sort of all the all the basics that affect people in a very direct way yeah. uh, that okay. the press sort of elides over. And I don't know if that's necessarily a right left. No, Vince, um, I, I think you actually make a, a very good point because, you know, one of the, the main problems that the, Dem the Democrats have is they've discarded a lot of these working class white voters that used to be the bread and butter of their party, right? And so as a result, I think one of the main causes of that is, as you say, is that the media are viewed more as elites, you know, and, that, and that's what Trump has played so beautifully because I always say Trump's not a Republican. He's more, he's best described as a right-wing illiberal populist. And one of the main elements of populism is distrust of elites, right? That's why so many people are anti-vax because medical scientists, those are elites and the media people are elites. And they do, again, kind of whether the, even this is true of even some of the right-wing or conservative mm -hmm. outs, they, they do have this ivory tower approach yeah. and it just sows a lot yeah. of distrust. So I, think I just think it's really weird that Trump is you know, the representative of, you know, the proletariat. When the guy's a billionaire who poops in a gold toilet and well, he's tell you, somehow you know, you know what, he uh, represents I, the working people of America, that's just weird to me. Well, I don't get I, it. Grow, growing up in New York, may I, may I make a comment on that? Because yeah, sure. one of the things that, things that Trump has done so brilliantly is that if you look at the heavy hitters in New York, real estate guys like, you know, the Spires or the Silversteins or... Mort Zuckerman, any of those guys, I mean, they think Trump is some two-bit grifter from Queens who doesn't know what he's doing. He's always been a second-class citizen. And that's how a lot of his voters feel. They feel they've been left behind by globalization. They're losing their country. Their party has abandoned them. And so they, he's bonded with them on that feeling of resentment, right? Because when you get right down to Trump, it's white grievance politics. That's the best yeah. way to describe Absolutely. his success. And so he can bond with the voters, even though you're right, he is as opposite from them as he can be. His, his economic policies are as hostile towards them as they could be. I mean, he governed as a plutocrat, not plutocrat, not as a populist, but he bonds with the voters because of that. And it's incredibly skillful. Well, have, he's, well a, he's a really good, he's really good at marketing and branding. He yeah. always has been. He's not a good businessman. Him and, you know, it's funny, like a friend of mine and I were just discussing uh, Robert Kiyosaki, is that his name? The guy who wrote uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Mm -hmm. And so many of my friends are like, bro, you got to read this book. And I'm like, bro, I read it. But I'm like, do you know how Kiyosaki got rich and stays rich? It's because of the book. <laughs> you know, He's done a really good job branding rather than because of his business decisions. Well, someone so in New York summed it up best. They said the only business success Donald Trump has ever had is selling the myth of his success. Absolutely. Which is, which is no small achievement. 
No, it, it's 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 an it's a really good skill that yeah. he has. That is absolutely and and he didn't come up with "Make America Great Again," but he made the slogan great. <laughs> you know if that makes any sense. Like he he knows how to market things, and one of the things he's marketed is the idea that not only you know when there is grievance, there is a grievance among the white working class. He's marketed that as you know not only you know you're getting screwed but here's he points the finger at not, not only individuals but also institutions and says here are the people who are screwing you every day now if you really want to talk about people and my friend leonard steinhorn talks about this a lot you really want to talk about the people who are left behind it's not the people in the rust belt go to the mississippi delta and talk to those people those are the real left behind people people who are basically drinking raw sewage because you know the pipes are rotted out, and you know they're the uh, the median income is thirteen thousand dollars. Like that's really where people are left behind. But again, we've marketed. This is why I say the right there the right wing media is better at marketing, and the right wing media is bigger because they made it seem like the Rust Belt counties in in Wisconsin and other places that those are the real people who are being left behind, and that you know, the globalist politics that have left them behind and they're not making the same money and immigrants are taking their jobs. And all of that is not fully borne out in fact when you look at some of the other people who are left behind, other Americans. Look, just to kind of try and tie a bunch of things together that you guys were just talking about. Trump, you know, populism itself is not a political ideology. It's not an ideology at all. It is a symptom of of what occurs when a populace is ignored and doesn't have its political desires fulfilled. In other words, just like their ability to thrive, right? And so what the, do they do? They inequality turn... is what foments it the most. Totally, a hundred percent. So as you're watching as wealth inequality continues to grow in the United States, as you're watching as the communities that people can remember thriving are now devastated, as you're watching, it's like, like I mentioned drugs because they really matter. You're watching more and more communities that are hollowed out by these sort of deaths of despair. That So you begin to realize, you're like, wait a second, like the ruling class in Washington, regardless of whether or not it's Republican or Democrat, has really no interest in intending to any of this. Things have not improved. Things have gotten worse. They're like constantly engaged in foreign wars where they're actually killing the people who grew up in my neighborhood by deploying them to those wars without any sort of explanation for why they're going in the first place, any clear mission. Uh, and just goes on and on and on. It continues. And again, this is not a partisan point. These are Republicans and Democrats who have been doing this for decades. So at some point you're like, I'm just going to turn to a radical means. And they turn to a guy. I mean, obviously, you know, everyone's, you know, we've now spent many years litigating how did Trump happen? But the but the reality is here to go to Jason's question, how is it that the billionaire ends up representing kind of the average person, the working class? How could that be? Well, the truth is, is because he was a traitor to his class. He made that a part of his pitch that he's like, look, Hillary Clinton went to my wedding. Why did she go to my wedding? I paid her. I gave her money. I know the inside game. And I'm going to use that knowledge to work for you now. And so people said, okay, I want that guy. I want that guy. Because, and, and every time Washington reacted with venom and said, yeah, he's disgusting. Yeah. He's the worst. I can't believe you'd ever let anybody like that. What a rube. That only made him more appealing to the class that already had resentment for the people who are now screaming, how dare you? How dare you? So You know, I, I think it's it's interesting, you know, when we talk about this and 
people certainly feeling left behind and this idea of, you know, uh, people with legitimate grievances. Mm -hmm. But the thing that the right, that trips me out about the right is they can look and see what occurs with people of color, for example, mm. particularly black people. And yet they'll be like, don't talk about race. You know what I mean? But yet black people are seeing this and saying, wait a minute, we've had a grievance. My father had a grievance. My great grandfather or my grandfather had a grievance. Mm -hmm. His father before him had a grievance, you know, and it's not being attended to by by either party. And I have a grievance about, you know, why, what is it that we all have in common? And the guy across town doesn't, mm. you know, and they see, well, you want to talk about wealth inequality and wealth disparities. Mm. Where are they largest? But yet no one listens again. And they make partisan arguments, particularly the right. The left, at least they start coming around and saying, yeah, yeah, we're not going to pay attention to you, but Black Lives Matter. You know what I mean? <laughs> the right is hostile to that idea, is hostile to the idea that there are legitimate grievances in Black communities. But yet, and they say, well, Trump will listen to Trump. And then they, you know, they'll say any black person that speaks up about that. Oh, you're you're a grifter. You're a, 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 a what do they call it? Like a race hustler or whatever. You know what I mean? And then they'll they'll side with Trump, who, by the way, you know, and I can show you some of the, the you know, empirical evidence and studies that have been done since 2017 that say that a lot of this actually, you know, the, the Trump, when, when David said that it was white grievance, it actually is white grievance. Like they, people are thinking of this racially, you know what I mean? We only think about race when it, when it comes to people of color, but when they actually go in and have studied this, uh, like one of my favorite things that I actually shared with my students recently was there was a, a survey where they interviewed, you know, where it was, Republicans and Democrats. Mm. And one of the things they asked was, do you agree with the statement that, um, you know, when Americans protest inequality, it makes America better? And the vast majority agreed mm -hmm. of uh, white Republicans and white Democrats. Mm -hmm. Then they put the word black in it. They put the word when black Americans protest inequality, it makes America better. And the vast majority, particularly of white Republicans, disagreed with that statement. So there's some sort of separation in the way that they view Americans versus black Americans. Mm. But yet it, there seems to be these blinders and they'll go with someone like Trump, but then someone who speaks to that uh, for, for African-Americans in particular, is a race hustler. Well, I would say a couple of things. This is such an important conversation, but I think when you look at one of the things that Trump was able to do, he was able to make white working class white people feel like a minority in their own country. And mm -hmm. you know, I spent a lot of time, my uncle served in West Virginia for many years, I was in Arkansas. So I thought Hillary was going to win, but I wasn't surprised when Trump won because of the anger out there and the disconnect, but a lot of working class whites, and I don't think it's that they're racist, 
but they've always felt that if they weren't at the top of the economic hierarchy, they would always be at the top of the racial hierarchy. And in their mind, you know, immigration and free trade and, you know, the first black president and social issues out of control and all this stuff, they feel that, that their country's been, to, been taken away from them. And so as a result, a lot of these people that would vote based on their pocketbooks are now voting more on race, religion, and culture. And if I were a democratic strategist, the stat the, or that would bother me the most was in 2020, Trump increased his share of both the black vote and the Latino vote. Okay, and this is and this is these are people that he called rapists and drug dealers. They weren't being drawn drawn to Trump. They were being repelled from the Democratic Party. Absolutely. And I've sounded like a broken record on this every every time yeah. I talk. So forgive me if people have heard this before. But in 2018, I really thought the Dems had it because they realized, you know, where there's very little difference between Trump voters and them is on kitchen table issues, the economy, jobs, healthcare, minimum wage, right? And so they won 41 seats. And even though they lost three seats in the Senate or two seats, they got 18 million more votes. And, and then in 2020, what is it? It's defund the police, Medicare for all, the Green New Deal. Again, it's not talking about issues that affect people's lives. And most people were turned off. And I would argue, except for, for Biden, which was a rejection of Trump, 2020 was a terrible election for the Democrats. They lost seats in the House. They could have taken, I think, a couple of state legislatures, which they didn't. Um, and things are looking pretty bleak uh, for the for the midterms because I just don't think they've been able to govern and they've, it's like herding cats. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation, but, but uh, that was the thing that was most distressing. And a lot of the people that the Democrats want to help the most are getting screwed by their policies. You know, look at the teachers unions with poor kids who can't go back to school, they can't afford tutors. Look at I read a good book called San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities. And you look at all these major cities where, where people are doing terribly and they're all run by Democrats. Yeah, I wouldn't say they're all run by Democrats, uh, but I would say that you are correct. San Diego 100%. is the only one, I believe, out of the top 15 cities in the country that does, does not have a Democratic mayor. I could be Yeah, but well, I mean, uh, so Jacksonville, Miami, um, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, there, there are a couple of places, I think, that, that are at the, the very least big on cities that. that are run by Republicans. But either way, your, your major point is correct that I've been saying for a long time, and again, I'm on the Daily Caller, so Democrats don't listen to me. I've never been on CNN. I haven't been on MSNBC in four years or whatever. They don't listen to me. But it's funny. Everything I said came true. Like, I said, look, Republicans... And I don't know if they were listening to me, but I remember going on Fox News several times and I said, Republicans are going to target black men and they're going to win some of them. You know what I mean? And then you saw them make a strong pitch for black men. I said, Latinos are not tied to any political party, you know, and if you let the Republicans brand you with socialism, even if you have some policies that are socialist, for example, I would say America's always had socialist policies, including things like, uh, you know, of course, having local police and, you know, that's a socialist thing. And, and of course, uh, you know, social security, you know, there's somebody here like, ah, oh, we don't have socialism, but they're getting a social security check. They're getting Medicare. You know, those are socialist policies. I would say, you know, 
you need to find a way to articulate things and not let yourself be branded and not come up with bad slogans like defund the police. And, you know, now we're seeing Latinos are leaving the party. Uh, we're seeing African-American men open to voting for Republicans or not voting at all. You know what I mean? Uh, and if they, and remember Trump only needed to find 11,780 votes. And people think, oh, you know, this isn't an issue. We're going to be fine. Uh, no, I, th I think, you know, uh, and, and I've said for a long time that Democrats need to find their white working class star. You know, we, we've, we've got plenty of black and brown stars. I hate to say this, and I know I'm getting in trouble, but, you know, no black and brown people watch the Daily Caller, so that's okay. But I, I've been saying this a long time that Democrats, if, if you want to win, you've got to find we've got tons of suburban white women. We've got tons of black and brown people, men and women. We've got queer people. We're doing really good on representation. You need that white working class person who's legit from West Virginia, you know, who's legit from Eastern Tennessee, who's legit from Arkansas, who can make a pitch and say, I'm of the Democratic Party too. It's not all AOC. I'm part of this. Connor Lamb is kind of that, right. but he's losing right now in Pennsylvania. Well, Tim, you know? Tim Ryan in Ohio, I think, is another one. And I mean, that Republican primary is such a crap show that he 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 might win, but he's but there, yeah, you're right. They're they're, they're unfortunately they're they're few and far between. I mean, yeah. one of the issues here, well, first of all, on this issue of you know black and brown people watching the daily car. It is probably worth remembering <laughs> that this is Just the largest minor this is the largest minority owned and operated Absolutely. digital media company in America. We should be honest about that. I did not know that. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, and that, and, and uh, let me just say it was the brown owner of the daily caller that made the pitch to me and that's why I'm here right now. Uh -huh. you know? It wasn't it wasn't this white guy. It wasn't yeah. you know and, and the like, fact that I I know Vince yeah. and Vince is a good guy and I was like, you know, I'll do it with Vince as long as we don't bring Richie McGinnis involved. In it. I was like, <laughs> well, right, I mean, yeah. what, what's, what's so much fun. And I have a show I do with Carrie Sheffield. It's so rare to have civilized debate, you know, and, right. and if, if we could just talk to each other in this country, you know, it's gotten so it started with Newt Gingrich, the demonizing, but, you know, I know people that can't go home for Thanksgiving now that families have been torn apart, you know, marriages have been ruined over this oh. political stuff. And it, it's, it's so sad because it's really sad. we can't have a discourse. Plus, you know, we don't even agree on the same facts. If, That's if, right. If we can't agree on the same facts, how can you govern a country? But let me, let me submit here an explanation in part. I think that that plays a role. This will be what I'm about to say is a criticism of uh, the controlling stake that the left has over a lot of the communication in the country. Although um, you're right that both sides have become balkanized um, for sure. You have, when, when you're talking about why are people, especially uh, Black and especially Latino voters, leaving the Democrats to the extent that they have, and certainly among Latinos, that's been a much bigger shift. One of the explanations is definitely just how disconnected the overall messaging is among Democrats, as you've both just laid out. Um, like things like, you know, picking up Latin X and trying to force it on people who have no interest in it whatsoever. I mean, I don't know how many polls have to be done on that subject to be like, okay, this is a stupid idea. How many Latino congressmen, Democrats, do you have to hear from who say, back off the Latinx thing? Nobody I mean, it's likes also this. A stupid, it's like a stupid argument. Like, who cares? 
but, it, I mean? but it demonstrates it demonstrates a certain decadence and a certain you know elitism that you're like completely disconnected with the actual concerns of voters, right? And there's there's the stuff like like being able to identify what a woman is, right? Like this, it came up this week, of course, in the Kentonji Brown Jackson hearing. But beyond that, like when you go on Twitter and you say, "Hey, Leah Thomas is a man competing in women's racing." Now on Twitter, that may be a coin toss opinion. Like it may be like some people agree, some people don't. But in the broader country, this is not a close call. Most people, most people of both political parties, whether or not they admit it in polling, or, or at least out loud, will say, "Yeah, you know, we shouldn't have biological men competing with women. It's unfair. It's an unfair advantage." Okay, but the people who say that right now on Twitter, if you say that's a man competing with women, what's happening to them this week? They're being banned. They're actually, they're literally legitimately yeah. being banned from conversation on these social media networks. Yeah, I, and so I, the I, end result, let me just finish this point. I'll, yeah, I'll let sorry. you jump go in. Ahead, go ahead. The end result is that not only is it difficult to have these conversations because people don't agree with one another, it's difficult to find a mainstream space you're allowed to have these kinds of conversations. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because right. the, um, the impression is that the other side, and, and, and just because the left controls a lot of these tools, their, their position has become, if the other side conveys an opinion that I disagree with, I'm going to basically make them ineligible to even express that opinion by saying, look, that, that opinion is so contemptible, it shouldn't even be a part of the debate. Therefore, you've been removed from the conversation. And I just think that that is a deeply dangerous phenomenon that is animating way too much of the censorship of public discourse right now. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll just step in real quick. Um, and then, you know, throw it over to, to David. But I, I think the, the interesting thing and one of the things that Republicans have done so incredibly well is make these culture war arguments something. Like the Latinx thing. How is that going to deal with the kitchen table issues that you mentioned earlier? I agree. Healthcare. And like, like you know, if you want to call me Black, or if you want to call me African-American, that's not going to help me feed my family one way or the other. That's Just right. call me what I want to be called. That's, that's right. it. You know what I mean? Call me what I want to be called. And, I, and, and, you know, make sure that my, you know, the constituency that, that I am a part of gets represented. That, you know, and our interests and our desires get yeah. represented. That, that's it. You know, Leah Thomas, and this is something, an argument that I made the other day and and there were people out there ready to cancel me because not cancel let me let me roll that back but there were people who were upset mm -hmm. uh because you know i i consider myself to be pro lgbt and and that includes the t's <laughs> you know let me say i'm pro you know not just the l's and the g's and the b's but also the, the t's uh-huh this man likes the t's yeah i didn't say that <laughs> well, I, I didn't I'm say gonna, I didn't. I'm not going to touch that one. Yeah, I, 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 let, let me just let me be clear there. You know, my wife was born female. Let me let me just say that. But uh, I have, you know, I like I like I have T friends that I do like. So if uh -huh. that means liking the T's, then yes, I there do you like the T's. But well, you know, oh. let, let me let me just say this one point is Leah Thomas is going to be okay one way or the other. She's still a national. She's a national champion right now. And by the way, she came in eighth and fifth in some other races, so she didn't dominate. Um, and I, I, my thing is, you know, people were, I said, you know, I'm undecided on the issue. And people were really upset with me. People on the left were like, 
how dare you? You know, I thought you were one of, you know, an ally. And mm -hmm. I'm like, I am. But you know what concerns me for the trans community is not whether they get to play, you know, who, whom they play sports against. You know, trans kids are more likely to commit suicide. Trans kids are more likely to be homeless. More likely to be to experience extreme poverty and food insecurity. Those are the trans kids or the trans people I'm I'm most concerned about. You ask me about Caitlyn Jenner, who's in the 1%. I don't care if she's got a penis or whether she's got a vagina or I don't know what she's got. Whatever's going on there, you know, that's none of my business. Because as I stated, I'm not into the trans people that <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That's just a joke. But um, you know, again, I, that's none of my business. What is my business and why I, you know, put my money where my mouth is to help trans, trans youth, and you can check my taxes, <laughs> you know what I mean? that I that I donate to trans youth is because those are my concerns. You know what I'm saying? It's not the 1% of trans people. If somebody says something about, uh, you know, what's her, who did I just say? Caitlyn Jenner. That, yeah. That's not gonna. That's not gonna make a difference for anybody. That's not gonna feed anybody. That's not gonna do anything. Right. You know what? Well, what is yeah. is taking care of those kitchen table issues that you were bringing up. My bad, David. We're supposed to be interviewing you. No, 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 no. <laughs> I let me just make sort of a, mic, a micro point and a macro point. The, the the smaller point I always make is that I agree with you, but I think Democrats really hurt themselves because they push these issues. Like for example, you know, I think first graders are too young to be learning about a lot of this stuff. And you, the classic example is this so-called, you know, don't say gay law in Florida, which is the Parental Rights and Information Act, which has a lot of liberals so up in arms because it just bans the discussion of things like sex changes and sexual orientation and condom demonstrations and things like that to kids that are under 10. I happen to believe that's the correct call. Most Americans do. I think sex ed is important, but you do it in high school or at least in junior high school. And so I think there's, you're right, it's only a small fraction of the party that believes this, but they're very vocal. And so that's what a lot of Americans think represents the party fairly or unfairly. And the second thing I would say on a bigger picture is, and this is my, one of my main problems with Republicans is that yes, they're good at, at the, the party, people in charge are good at focusing on those issues because what does the Republican party stand for? Other than obstruction, you know, internalizing the big lie and being a special interest for wealthy donors and uh, a vessel for the special interest of our wealthy donors and corporations. I, the party really does not stand for anything right now. And so much of the traditional stuff went out the window with Trump. Now the fiscal profligacy, in fairness, that started long before he got there, but things like free trade and sensible immigration and an alliance-based foreign policy and a consistent China policy and a strong Russia policy, the list goes on and on. So much of that stuff went out the window. So what's really left except the social issues and the cultural issues. And so that's what they harp on because they don't have anything else to really talk about. Yeah, I think the don't say gay, and, and I might not understand this because when I first read it, it was like kindergarten through third grade. I was like, that's reasonable. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, I think once you start getting to fifth and sixth grade, you know, I have a 10 year old, almost 11 year old daughter. And, you know, there are certain things, you know, once you start hitting fifth and sixth grade, particularly for girls, they start changing. 
You know what I mean? So third that, that's when you years can, old. I mean, eight and under is fair. Yeah, no, I, I agree. But once you start talking about, you know, the older kids, six, I, if you wait till high school, you're going to have a bunch of ninth graders with babies. And oh, I agree. <laughs> I, I think you, you got to get it, get them earlier than that. But um, I, I would say, you know, my understanding is uh, it's more about family structure. So when the kid who's got two dads or two moms shows up, you could say, hey, there's different ways that families are structured. There are families where there are two dads or where there are two moms, you know? Um, and that being a way to have, you know, being able to introduce that so that, you know, the kid's not being made fun of. Actually, I remember I worked at an after-school program in DC, right, for a little while. And there was a, a kid who had, who was adopted and he had two moms. And, you know, the other kids were confused and these were a little bit older kids. I think they were like sixth or seventh grade, but, you know, a couple of them made fun of them. You know, we had to intervene on that. And if it were just kind of understood that this is just their family structure and it's different than another, if you have the don't say gay, then that kid is going to be isolated like like the kid that I saw was, and we have to intervene. And of course, we're the authority members. And, the, you know, that doesn't well, I make think, the kid I think real cooler. quick, and then I'll let Vincent, but I think what tugs at people viscerally is that it's saying that parents shouldn't be the one to talk about these things with their kids. Okay. It, teachers should not be the ones talking to young kids about their sexuality and about, uh, you know, sex change operations and, and things like that. It should be their parents. And I think that's what has rightly or wrongly has so many parents in the country worried yeah. is that they feel yeah. teachers are playing a role that they should role yeah. playing well, it's being done too early. I well, think that a, a lot of people though are being told that their kids are being told about sex or being read pornography because no, that's the I, way I, it's again, being a lot promoted. of it is perception, but I'm just saying yeah. viscerally, that's what gets, I mean, and you saw this when Terry McAuliffe made that gaffe in the Virginia gubernatorial race, right? Yeah. Said, well, parents shouldn't be involved in their kids' education. That's the kind of stuff that gets people yeah. riled up. No, I mean McAuliffe, <laughs> he he totally fumbled the ball on that that whole situation, um, and you know of course uh, Glenn Youngkin certainly seized on it rightly and was able to 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 pull that home. But I think it's important to understand um, there. I think teaching a certain level of tolerance, not necessarily about sex. But teaching tolerance in the classroom makes it easy for the, the teachers to conduct a classroom mm -hmm. and to not lose a student. I saw that kid when, you know, the other kids were making fun of him for his household. You know, this is a kid who probably didn't have a home at one point. Mm -hmm. And then now he had two loving mothers and the other kids didn't understand it. And someone's going to come around, around and for all the libertarians who are watching, somebody from the state is coming around and saying, no, we can't, we can't actually explain that there's other ways to structure families to the, you know, to make sure that that kid, so we don't lose that kid. That kid's probably had a hard way. I'm just thinking about this one individual kid, right? But you know, I know for a fact he had a hard way. He finally had found a home. He found a loving home and the other kids didn't understand the structure. The idea is not to teach kids pornography or to teach them about sex. 
And that that's my understanding of, right. of the law. So when well, you say I, you don't know, say gay, you can't say that they're gay families. A couple of things, a couple of things jump to mind here. One of them is that for the people who've been supporting the legislation, the very conversation you're talking about, they said is completely safe and would be allowed to have in the classroom. These are conversations that might come up between students and teachers uh, and in no way would be imperiled by the law. The law specifically goes to classroom instruction on the issues around um, sexual uh, identity and sexual preference, that, that that not be a part of the coursework, um, That's which is, by the way, you know, every school has to make a decision at some level about what is included and what is excluded from curriculum. And sometimes that's made at the, the school level. It could be made at the school board level. That could be made at the state level. And every state, of course, has you know, benchmarks that they want the schools to hit and things that they don't want them teaching until they reach a certain age, That that's consistent. The other part is there's a poll that was just out shared by um, Mark Caputo over at Politico that showed that at least in Florida, among Democrat primary voters, a majority of Democrat primary voters support the law, mm -hmm. Democrat primary voters. So there's, I think this kind of goes back to the point that I was making before, which is I there's a disconnect in the American national media, certainly in the way that they cover stories, definitely in the way that they omit coverage of certain stories, and the extent to which it actually reflects like a useful uh, proxy for the American people. Because if you were to look at CNN's newsroom and say, hey, to what extent does the CNN's newsroom, you know, we constantly talk about like newsrooms and organizations should reflect the people that they are supposed to represent. Well, does CNN reflect the average American? Does you know, and go down the list, I'm just picking CNN, but go down the list of news outlets that have access to people in power. Uh, and and I would say that based on their editorial judgment, no, they don't. Yeah, no, I I, I hear that. Um, you know, and, and in terms of the law, I the only thing I would say is that uh, I think that goes back to where I would say the right kind of dominates a lot of media outlets, even for... Uh, you know, even for left wingers and, and Democratic voters. And that narrative that this don't say gay law is about, at least in my understanding, and you, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, I haven't, I haven't gone and read the legislation, but my understanding is that it's being, um, that the way it's being marketed is that it's this sensible law protecting children from, you know, some sort of pornographic teaching that's going on and it's widespread. And most people, I know my kids have not come home and said, hey, we learned about sex. You know what I mean? And, and like I said, I have a 10 year old. She hasn't even said that. You know what I mean? It's not something that's being taught widespread and in every classroom and they're talking about that everywhere. I think, it, you know, people are worried about it because there are, you know, LGBT youth. And, and just like, as many conservatives would say, I think people are not necessarily worried about the third to uh, the kindergarten to third grade. They're worried that this is going to extend, you know, this is just the beginning of the snowball that becomes an avalanche. I think, you know, that that's the other thing is that, okay, you begin with this law, just like people who are, who are against uh, gun control, you know, they're like, yeah, this one gun control law, sure, it sounds sensible, but then it will be a snowball effect to the next gun control law. And the That's next the whole slippery slope law. argument, which you see in, in a lot of things. Right, I, absolutely. I, I would agree. And well, I think, again, you know, I see a real opportunity for Democrats 
in one, and I love these stats, you see, in February of 2021, more than 75% of Republicans thought Trump should run again. Now that number is under 50%. And I think that is an opportunity for Democrats to re-engage with a lot of these voters that, that they lost and do it again, talk about issues that affect their lives. They've proved that they can do it before. Uh, and you know it's gonna be tough because we can talk about this. I mean, there's so many things I wanna talk about, but I don't see how Biden can run again. And I think we'll all agree that, uh, to put it mildly, Kamala Harris has not been a very effective vice president. I think that recent trip to Poland was pretty much of a national embarrassment. And so, you know, who's, who's going to run? Uh, and then does that, because someone's not running for re-election, that puts the race so up in the air and there's a lot at stake. And if, we, if Republicans take the House, which they probably will, Right now, I'd say if the election were held today, I'd say they, they'll take the Senate, but I think it'll be closer as we get to election day. So I'd still rule that one close to a toss up because the map favors the Democrats. They're defending 16 seats. There was, or, or, yeah, and the Republicans have to defend, or 14, the Republicans have to defend 22. So it's a, it's a tougher map. But in any case, um, if they take the House and then the election gets thrown into the House, so uh, that's what really worries me is that we could have some a major constitutional crisis come the next election. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, I, I think uh, you're you definitely got a point there. I think, um, you know, I think Trump, you know, it gets really tough if if uh, Republicans are able to come up with another candidate other than Trump, because Trump gets Democrats fired up. But if they get another candidate other than Trump, or as I've said, I think Trump if Trump pairs with Tim Scott, I think it gets really tough. The other thing is, uh, I think Democrats, uh, you know, of course, need to find a unifying message, and it can't just be saving democracy. I think there's there's got to be a more, as as uh, Vince pointed out, uh, unifying kitchen table uh, kind of message to put out, and they need to do a better job at marketing their actual accomplishments. They've accomplished actually a lot in this amount of time. But everyone thinks of Afghanistan and all their also big blunders and big failures. Uh, a lot of people are pointing to Pete Buttigieg, but it gets hard when you can't tell the, the kindergarten or third grader that the president might be gay. <laughs> you know, I think that'll be an interesting. So who would, who would be your who would be your choice then for both parties in twenty four? Well, I think Republicans so number one. If they really want to win, they got to convince one guy to actually run. I'm not going to say who that guy is because I know him and I know he doesn't he doesn't want to talk about it. So I won't say who that guy is. <laughs> wow, but, that's a mystery. Yeah, yeah. but I, I will say, hey, I know a lot of Republicans. But maybe I, I maybe know. Vince can say because then he's not. Now nah, Vince not knows him too. Or we, <laughs> I don't think Vince can say either. <laughs> but but trust me, David, our 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 listeners, the the twelve of them, they can read between the lines. <laughs> no, you um, know what, Jason, say it. Who do you think would actually win? Um. You know, I don't want to upset this guy, but you he won't do it. see Just it. Just say, it. say um, it. I I think Tucker Carlson would be a very difficult candidate for Democrats to beat. Yeah, um, I think I think he's actually gone off the deep end a little bit with the pro-Russia, anti-Ukraine uh, thing. And I still think, again, you know, it's the same thing with. Remember, people were talking about Oprah. Another thing, another underappreciated uh, quality that Trump had is he was used to being in the firing squad. Remember, 
all the tabloids were over him all the time being in New York. So this stuff didn't phase him. But if someone mm. like Tucker Carlson or Oprah, like a media darling, ran, I don't think they're ready for just what a conf what a contact sport it is. Oh, I don't know. People show up at Tucker nothing Carlson's is doorstep. It's one thing. No, I'm say he... it's one thing when you're safe in your studio in your hermetically sealed little tube, but when you have to go out into the real world and be interviewed by all kinds of people and take all kinds of shots, I think it's different. I mean, I, so I think it takes I, a I, lot I mean, of I, shots. I, I would, I would respectfully disagree on that one. I think yeah. a lot of people would like it, but I don't see, I don't think he's electable. Yeah, I, I think um, I didn't think Trump was electable, so I, I could be wrong about this. But I know we got to wrap up. Uh, but I, I will well, certainly. Me, I, I'm sorry. I just want to add one 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 element to this, just because just because that came up. One, I don't know if, if if Tucker would be able to be elected. He's obviously charismatic. He's definitely capable of attracting an audience, and so he could do very well if he were to run. Uh, I, I just want to add this one note. He isn't and never has been pro-Russia. He's definitely pro-America. He's just been very hesitant about the extent to which we engage in foreign conflict because he's seen how badly that's gone for the United States. Well, he's been, look, Trump was Putin's puppet. So he's, he, he's maybe he's not pro-Russia, but he's certainly been uh, supportive, if not, if not supportive, complicit in what uh, Putin has done, even though being the fair guy that I am, Putin did what he did because of 20 years of appeasement that ran over four different presidents. So it wasn't just one, it wasn't just one individual thing, but I would just say my candidates, who I think would be the two best candidates, I'd love to see Larry Hogan run as the Republican, the governor of uh, Maryland, because we need yeah. governors. Governors make good presidents, not businessmen or congressmen. And my dark horse Democratic candidate, Governor Andy Bashir of Kentucky. Hmm. He's, that's he's an interesting popular. He's done a great job with COVID. And again, you need a governor from a red state who can talk to working class voters, but he's also his dad was governor. He's got a good pedigree. So those would be my two. Those two candidates would I think be the best qualified to serve the country. But of course, who's best qualified and who gets the nomination, as we know, yeah. aren't quite the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think Andy Bashir is a is an interest. You know, that's an interesting proposal. I I, I don't know uh, how that works, but I, I and I see what you're doing there. You're doing like the Vincent Jason Save the Nation politicization of <laughs> of things, where you got a, a blue state. I would say Maryland's purple, but a blue state Republican against a red state. Well, uh, Maryland, Democrat. in terms of, of the legislature and voter re registration, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts is another one. And, yeah. and Larry Hogan and Charlie Baker have two of the highest approval ratings in their yeah. Republican governors in very blue yeah. states. It's possible it's people yeah. can govern. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there are a lot of things that people forget about Larry Hogan, and hopefully we'll get an opportunity to interview him. And hopefully he will be as gracious as you have been, David. Uh, we really enjoyed having you, and, and hopefully we can have you again on, on anytime, the guys. I, I can't believe it's already been an hour. I thought it was thirty minutes. I, lo I love the yeah, conversation. It did. That's because I was talking too much. Uh, I apologize, <laughs> but that means that you were saying some profound things that I felt like I had to jump in. So we're really uh, uh, grateful, and uh, also want to give a quick shout out to Carrie Sheffield, uh, who's who's my friend, who suggested having you on the show. We've got to have you both. Maybe we can have you both. Yeah, at the I same love time. it. We have a very civilized debate. That's that's what we love. Yeah, absolutely. That's what we try to do here. Maybe we'll yeah, join yeah. our podcast one day. David, 
thanks again, Vince. You already know what it is. Uh, to all our, our viewers, please give us a like, subscribe, uh, do all that good stuff. You know the drill. Peace. Thanks.